Thanks, Nicole. Today, uh, the sermon out of Genesis covers one of those passages that you get to when you're reading and you're like, this is the most boring text, I think, that exists in Scripture. We're looking at uh, a couple of genealogies, and we're not going to read through all of them. Um, Nicole read through just a, a small one. But there's a lot of material, actually, in these ge- genealogies. And you see, you know, it's, it's parents having kids and those kids having kids. And so I think that um, one of the things that I see in terms of parents, one of the greatest fears that they have is the eternal state of their children. Are our kids going to grow up and carry on the faith? And so out of that desire to see their kids in the faith and um, to see them go down that track and to alleviate some of these fears, we see, you know, a lot of efforts that parents make. They'll maybe look for churches that have a lot of elaborate programming or they'll set up all kinds of structures or they'll maybe maybe even decide to homeschool rather than send their kids to public school to stay away from the influences of the world. A couple months ago, we were at a graduation party uh, for Amanda down at St. Olaf, and um, we were introducing ourselves, and one of the families we introduced ourselves to, we said, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and the first thing out of their mouth to me, Anna had been talking to them for a while, the first question they asked was, so are you guys one of those churches where the parents just drive up and drop their kids off at the, at the entrance of the church and then drive away? I said, no, we're not one of those kinds of churches. And then they said, you know, we're, we volunteer at church, and, and that's our job. We sit there, and we, we uh, take the kids that the parents drive off, and then we watch the parents drive away. And then they went, kind of went on into their, you know, their perspective on that. But, um, so in my experience, and so I, I've been uh, in the ministry since my mid-20s, over a couple decades, I've seen a lot of models for youth ministry. I've seen a lot of models for parents raising their kids, popular programs and books. But the thing that, that I have observed over all of these different models and approaches to raising kids in the faith, whether it's the parents or the churches, the thing that I've observed is that the biggest factor is the sincerity and seriousness of the parents. Now, it's a general observation. It's not true. There are parents that do amazing jobs in raising their kids, um, and their kids turn out like little demons. And then there are, Tim's raising his hand, he, he spent a, a few years as a little demon, um, raised by uh, a pastor, actually. And then there are kid, parents that do a terrible job, um, and their kids find faith, and they could be the most zealous Christians you'll see. Well, one commentator in his commentary on Genesis almost called his book The Training of the Fathers, for he sees a lot of material. In fact, one of the most significant intentions of the the book of Genesis is, is the training of the fathers. And I would throw in also a lot of training for women and mothers. And while the passage today, and again, Nicole read uh, chapter 4 and just the genealogy of the line of Adam through his son Cain, which eventually ended up in seven generations to the, to the man Lamech, uh, that's what Nicole read. The, really, the passage that we're covering today, the section 
of these are the generations of, starts in 5.1 and goes through 6.8, right up to the flood. And so as I described in a previous message, we're, we're, we're going to spend our time on these sections. And so Genesis is divided into 11 sections, um, each be, section beginning, it's like a chapter heading, beginning with this phrase, these are the generations of. And so each narrative then is following uh, the story about what happened to those kids. So last week was the generations of the heavens and the earth, and this week is the generations of Adam. And so the first line from Adam, so they, Adam and Eve bore Cain and Abel, Cain killed Abel, Cain was exiled, and so the first genealogy we read, the record of Adam and Eve's son, Cain, was in chapter 4. Chapter 5 begins the story of Seth. There's a few large genealogies, and chapter 5 is one of them. And again, like, like I said at the beginning, we have a tendency to get to these, and we skip it because we're like, how in the world does this have anything to do with this narrative? And so we skip it because it's tough to read and it's boring to read. Um, but actually, the genealogies provide the context for the narrative. They, they actually provide the reader with the direction and the interpretive lens that he or she is to be reading the entire book of Genesis through. I can remember the first time, so many years ago, this would have been 93, I took an, a class on interpreting the Bible. And the first time I read Genesis after taking that interpreting class, I ran into this repeated phrase, and these are the generations of. And I knew that the author was doing something with that phrase. And I remember I was, I was laying on a couch, another long story, but I was over at Anna's place. This is prior to us being married. I had, I had burnt Anna's parents' house down. It's a long story, but that's what happened. Four months before we were to get married. Uh, so they had an apartment, and I was, we were, I was sitting on a couch reading Genesis, and it came to me. It came to me. Why in the world does the author structure his book according to genealogies? Well, it's because the author is telling us that his intent, his primary intent, is to reveal who this promised child is from Genesis chapter 3. There's a promise there to the offspring. We covered it last week. You will give birth to a child that will destroy the serpent who brought death to all things. And inherent within that promise is that this child would not only crush that serpent, but it would, would counteract the effects of that serpent and his deceptions in the world. And that led, when, when I saw that, when I began to see that, it led to years of study. It's been a foundation for years of study of the Bible. And really began to grow my appreciation for the Word of God, which we know from Psalm 119, if we grow our appreciation for the Word of God, we grow our appreciation for God Himself. And so I want to encourage everyone to, to take the classes that we offer. Not only will you learn some things, but you'll learn, I think, what is far more important, how to approach the reading of the Bible. You'll, read, you'll learn some things about the Bible, 
But better than learning things about the Bible is to learn how to read the Bible for yourself. And so we have Message of the Bible coming up um, next week. Lawrence is starting it. And then after that, we have the class on how to interpret the Bible. So these genealogies. So there are seven generations that Nicole read through from Adam through Cain. And they end up with Lamech. We're going to call him Lamech 1 because the the person that ends in the 10th generation in the line of Adam through Seth, his name is also Lamech. So Lamech 1 is the end point for the line that goes through Cain. So I just want to highlight a few things from the genealogy of Cain. First of all, Cain builds a city. There are some things that the author notes going through these genealogies. Cain builds a city. The seventh and final generation, which I'm going to say again is Lamech 1, he has this, this, it's a song, but it's a boast. He's got two wives that he's boasting to, and he's boasting that I have killed a young boy. And if, and if anybody is going to take vengeance on Cain and for God to avenge Cain sevenfold, then I will be avenged 77-fold. So his boast is in that he is greater than Cain in his violence, and he's a polygamist. So he's gathered these women around them, and he boasts in his violence, his violence against a young boy. And so we basically see um, that to that point, in humanity's line, uh, it's got to a point where the, the men are brutal and it's, and it's painful for women and children. Now, Lamech has three sons, and those three sons are noted for their skills. One is nomadic agriculture. The other one is music ability. And the third is, is known for its, his manufacture of metal goods. And then it mentions Lamech's daughter. Lamech's daughter's name is Namah, which really doesn't, it doesn't catch you until, you until you understand what the name means. The name means delightful, beautiful, charming, and literally means female ostrich. And so you get the sense that Lamech's daughter is, um, she's a show-off of her beauty and her charm. So that is all we know about the line of Cain. Now, one of the things, if you take the, the message of the Bible or the interpreting class, one of the things you discover is that where we are, as, we are used to being very specific and detailed and thorough in our writings, Hebrew literature is not that way. It is very sparse. It gives you a little bit of information. And we are insecure about using a little bit of information to make conclusions. Because we think, well, you just know a little bit. How can you make conclusions? Well, that's because we're used to thorough, detailed explanations of everything. Well, if your approach towards literature is that you only have a little bit of space to write on because... we have massive amounts of paper back then. Things that you would write on were expensive and hard to come by. All right, so they are, they, they are wanting to maximize the use of space, and they communicate things subtly, and what you communicate means a whole lot. So all we know from the line of Lamech is their 
the skills that they developed, music, agriculture, metallurgy, and that the only representative woman is known as a beautiful show-off. It's all we know from the line of Cain. Now you get to Seth, 10 generations, so it's Adam through Cain, then Adam through Seth. Seth means God has appointed, so we have a murderer, Cain, and we have one whom God has appointed on the other side. And the author says this is when people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So in contrast to the line of Cain, we have a a line of people that call upon the name of God. And the text says that that Seth was fashioned in the image of Adam, who was fashioned in the image of God. So the author is wanting us to make a direct connection between Seth and God. Seth is like God. And also the text, unlike the genealogy for Cain, the genealogies mentions, and that there were other sons and daughters. And this is going to be an important point to remember in a few moments when we get to the flood. And you get to final generation Lamech. He has a child. His name is Noah. And Noah means rest. And there's an explanation. So just like Lamech from Cain had this saying boasting in his violence and his polygamy. Lamech's saying, in the naming of his son Noah, he says, maybe this child will be the one who gives us rest from the curse of the ground and the curse of the toil of our work. All right, so if you remember back to the promise in Genesis 3, You had the promise of an offspring that's going to come and crush the serpent and counteract the effects of the serpent, one of which the ground was cursed and work was going to become much harder for both man and woman, and then ultimately the ground was going to consume humanity and death. And so here you have Lamech naming his son, maybe this is the one. So you see, Lamech from Cain is boasting in his his strength, his violence, his polygamy. And you have Lamech seeking the offspring that's going to fulfill the promise of God to bring humanity from the curse. Lamech from Cain is the promise of vengeance. Lamech from Seth is the promise of rest. And so you have these two trajectories. You have what what, uh, Leon Cass in his book, The Beginning of Wisdom on Genesis, he calls it the heroic temptation. That's one trajectory. The trajectory of humanity that wants to be heroes The women pursue beauty, and the men pursue possessing the beautiful women. And there's the glory of battle in the face of death. And so one of the things that you see, if you, so you know, in in the chapter five, it says, and this person begat this person, and they lived so many years until they died after begetting that person. So if you trace all of those years and 
put it on a timeline. Um, Lamech from Seth was alive at the time when the first person died. No, Adam. So Adam lived like 900 and some years. Lamech saw the first person to die a natural death. He saw death, he was experiencing toil. And so as humanity increasingly faces death, not only from violence, from the line of Cain, but also naturally from the line of Seth, you had this this pursuit of glory, this pursuit of violence, the pursuit of being a hero, which if you think back to, you know, Greek literature and and all all of those stories, um, those things are highlighted, honor. You know, there's a, there's a movie that came out a few years ago, uh, Live, Die, Repeat, on the edge of tomorrow. It's a uh, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt movie. Anybody familiar with it? The same day keeps happening over and over, but it's not like Groundhog Day. It's the world is destroyed every day, and it keeps reliving that day. But anyway, Tom Cruise's character, uh, he's, a, he's a journalist, and he is uh, not a virtuous man. Um, he gets punished to go to the front lines by the general. And so he wakes up on the tarmac, and he's a major. Tom Cruise is a major, but he gets demoted to a private, and he's been sent to the front lines, and he's got to go fight this battle to save humanity. So he's not supposed to really be there. And then Bill Paxton, his character is Master Sergeant Farrell. And this line is repeated over and over and over because they keep replaying the day over and over and over. So he comes up to this guy, and he's, a, he's from the south. He's from Kentucky. I'm not going to be able to do a good southern accent. But he says this. The good news is that there is hope for you, private. Battle is the great redeemer. It is the fiery crucible in which true heroes are formed. The one place where all men truly share the same rank, regardless of what kind of parasitic scum they were going in. And so we we know, we can see in our culture, whether it's movies or whether it's in books or whether it's in our sports, we can see the heroic trajectory. We can see the heroic temptation. I was reading the news this morning, and there is a story about, um, you know, Senator Machen and Senator Sinema. Uh, there are these more conservative-leaning uh, Democrats in the Senate that are blocking the passage of the $3.4 trillion uh, social welfare infrastructure package. Um, and so, I was reading the New York Times, and so they were down on these two people. Um, but this, this Senator Cinema from Arizona, um, she's a triathlete. And so I just clicked on the link that had a story about her being a triathlete. And I, I've done a couple triathlons when I was a lot younger. Uh, she had just completed an Ironman. And they had pictures of her riding her her cool bike, and I like cool bikes. I could feel the jealousy. I want to be an Iron Man. 
I want to have that cool bike. I could, I could just feel it. You know what? That's what, the, that's what the Bible calls the flesh. We know that pull. We experience it every day. And if we recognize that that's not going to be us, then we become the anti-hero. And we live our life according to, to being not what the heroes are. And that's really the same thing. So that's one trajectory. That's the trajectory of Adam through Cain. And then there's the other trajectory. And all of this, all, the only thing that this, G, this trajectory, that this family line is known for, is their godliness. Enoch was one of the, one of the sons, and he, was, he walked, the text says he walked with God, and, died, and God just took him. He didn't die a natural death. These two lines converge at the beginning of chapter 6. And it says, now the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took anyone that they wanted to be their wives. And then it says, these were, this is where the Nephilim came from. Now, a lot of interpretations have said, well, the sons of God are angels or fallen angels, and then the daughters of men are obviously daughters that are born to humanity. But if you're following the flow of the text, he's not talking about some t- titan offspring from angels that sleep with women and then have these giants, because sometimes the text actually says they were giants. If you follow the line of the text, so you have the line of Cain, and then you have the line of Seth, and then you come here to the beginning of chapter 6, which is introducing the flood. What it is, is you have the sons of God, the men from the line of Seth, the ones associated with God, saw that the daughters of Cain were beautiful. They were attracted to the the men of, of Seth's line, increasingly became attracted to the heroic trajectory, the pursuit of violence, the pursuit of honor, the pursuit of glory, and the pursuit of these women, these beautiful women that were showing off their goods. And that's when things got corrupted. There was no more line that was righteous. And then violence just spread. Everyone was violent. The heroic tradition took over the righteous. And then that's when God said, I cannot, I I can't sustain this any longer. I regret, I regret that I put humanity on the earth. Lawrence is going to cover the flood next week. He'll get into that. But as we think about this text and what it should mean to us, we have to come to the conclusion and answer this question, what are we going to be known for? And what are the generations coming after us going to be known for? Our athleticism, our charm and beauty, the skills that we develop, the good skills that we develop, is that what we're going to be known for? Or are we going to be known for pursuing God and the hope that he provides. See, life promises boredom, toil, and death. 
we can find ways of dealing with that to, to, to become immortal. Glory, honor, beauty, these are all things that reflect, I'd like to live forever. You know, I, I, I'm, I just turned 49, I'm looking at 50. My wife is a few years behind us, and we can, we can start feeling the effects. She's not near her 50s, she's well into her 40s still, she reminds me. But we can start feeling the effects. We have started to feel the effects. And we have these comments. We're getting old. And you lament that. You lament that. These pressures are always there. Boredom, toil, and death. And that's what was happening with Lamech, the father of Noah. But he did not let himself be drawn into the heroic trajectory. He let himself continue to put his hope in this promise. And it's interesting, for seven generations, Cain's curse was passed down. In 10 generations, the promise to the woman was passed down. Those, those generations held on to those things. Now, we can tack on religion. We can tack on religion. We can go to church. We can do religious things. We can send our kids to good programs. We can, it's easy to check the boxes of religion and Christianity today. And yet have the things we find and really ultimately put our hope and glory in. We can follow right along with the world and pursue the heroic temptation. We can raise our kids with permissiveness and we just want to be the best friend to our kids. Those things are tempting for our children. Or, obviously, again, if we recognize and our kids recognize that that's not an option for them, maybe they're not athletic, maybe they're not smart, maybe they're not beautiful, then really they become the anti. The Proverbs teaches the further you go down that heroic tradition or go down this path of foolishness, the harder it is to get out. Because, again, everybody's facing boredom, toil, and death. And so we, we, we pursue things to overcome this curse. We pursue things to live life to the fullest. That path starts easy. The path of foolishness, the path of the hero, the path of the beautiful starts easy and becomes harder because life continues to get harder and happiness continues to elude us. The path of wisdom, and the, the challenge is, is that this happens in our youth. All the, all the youth are out today. It's when we get to our teen years where these temptations and options emerge. And that path of foolishness is wide and easy to start down. And the path of wisdom is narrow and hard to start, start down. Because you're fighting all of these temptations while you begin to really feel boredom, toil, and death. But the thing about the path of wisdom is that it gets, it gets easier as you go, and happiness grows as you go. But that's not real clear at the beginning. Death is inevitable, as Lamech finally observed, when he saw Adam die. Now, an so I think that there's a way to approach this that take two realities from the text. I think the first, the first thing we have to grasp in terms of how are we going to be a people 
that is known for its hope in the Lord rather than its hope in the heroic and the beautiful. I think the first thing is that we need, to, we need to recognize that what God gives us in his creation are indeed good things and to enjoy them. They, they are intended to produce pleasure. A lot of religious efforts will push us away from enjoying the good things of God. If we enjoy the things of God and recognize that God has given them to us, that grows our gratitude towards him. To enjoy those things without showing gratitude towards God diminishes joy. Happiness is a gift from God. Happiness is a gift from God, which is contrary to what the serpent said. God is not after your happiness. He wants to keep you controlled and in a place that is reserved only for him. He doesn't want you to be like him. So he told lies about God. But happiness is a gift from God. And we can experience that happiness if we recognize that the good things he gives us to enjoy are indeed from him. And while enjoying these good gifts... See, it's not, it's, not like, it's not like the line of Adam through Seth didn't have skills. They were carpenters. They built the ark. They were farmers. They grew grapes. They took care of animals. They were zookeepers. They had skills. It's just not what they were ultimately known for. What the world provides in terms of what God gives us for work to do and the things to enjoy... There are limits. There are limits. Our ultimate love and our ultimate hope should rest in the promises that God gives to ultimately deliver us and give us rest from boredom, rest from toil, and rest from death through Jesus Christ. See, it's a, it's a matter of what we love and what we hope, not an issue of perfection. It's not an issue of becoming the most righteous and most perfect person. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, be careful if that's how you approach knowing God. You can become too perfectionist, as we know from the New Testament, and eventually becomes legalism. See, it, it, we, and we know, and our kids know, and this is where I think, this is where I think really the, the important point comes out. Our kids know what we love. Our kids know what we put our hope in. Our kids know what we delight in. Our kids know what we do to overcome the experiences of boredom and of toil and of death. Our kids will know and see true and sincere confession of our sin or the confession of sins of, of people against us. they they will know and see and hear and understand if we acknowledge the reality and the pain and suffering of sin. And our kids will know whether we have a sincere pursuit of God and his promises and a sincere desire to put our hope in him or not. Our kids will see prayer and worship as sincere expressions of hope and gratitude 
and not just religious things that we do to check the boxes to make ourselves feel like religious people. Our kids will see us pursue the church and relationships in the church because of our desire to truly support others and to be supported by them. And our kids will see whether or not if we are sincere in the things that we enjoy that God has given us. And they'll see that our efforts to, to engage in service in the world, they'll, they'll, they'll know if it's sincere. They'll know if it's serious. You know, we see here one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. The big question that we have to ask Do I really believe that Jesus Christ is the promised offspring that will give me rest? If we believe that and we pursue that, we will know that rest. And our kids, in all of the experiences of the pain and the suffering and the boredom and the toil, will see, you know, my parents went this way. And I can increasingly see the world around me going this way. There's something to the faith that my parents had. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for the the wonderful stuff found in this uh, text. Lord, I, I, I feel even uh, I just I feel even after preaching through it that there's a lot of stuff left. So God, I thank you for the the, the depth of your word, the power of its truths. And God, the the conviction that it gives us as we think about not only our own lives and living before you in a way to experience the rest that you have provided through Jesus Christ, the rest that you say is Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath rest that we get out of Hebrews. So God, we, we want that for ourselves, and we want that for our children. We ask that you'd help us to do that. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.